0: You know, I uh, just want you to kick back and enjoy our time together this morning, uh, even with a smaller crowd, with some of our folks gone for the holidays. So there's plenty of coffee in the back. Uh, stretch out, and if there's an empty seat in front of you, put your feet up. And let's turn to Joshua chapter 24. We've been in this series on leadership and talking about the how strategic it is for us that we really live out of the power of the kind of leadership that the lord is leading us into and so we've been unpacking that through a lot of different ways we've been talking about the 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 importance of being good followers finding significant mentors in our lives and following the right kind of people we've been talking about learning how to see as leaders learning how to listen as leaders learning how to live in the now learning how to worship learning how to pray i mean we've been talking about all this this fall and this is our last sermon on uh leadership that we're ever going to give ever here at midtown <laughs> so if uh if you're sick and tired of uh being a leader because all you are is a follower your day has finally come all right no uh we're going to start a season on advent starting next sunday uh, So we're jumping to the end of the book, and I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But to wrap up our series, I thought it would be appropriate for us to talk about uh, or to see if Joshua has anything to say to us about one of the most important things about being a leader, and that is making decisions. That making decisions is one of the most difficult things that you will ever do as a leader, whether it's leading your family or whether it's leading your kids, or whether it's leading in your career, or whether it's just leading your own heart and your own moral journey, or whether it's leading uh, a ministry, or whatever it may be, you're going to be called on to make decisions. And as leaders, we want to make the right decisions, don't we? So how do we do that? And I can tell you right now that there is nothing that trips us up more than making decisions. And if you don't believe that's true, all you have to do is join Renee and I on a Friday night Uh, We have date night on Friday night, and we typically go eat somewhere, and so we get in the car, and if you're married, maybe you can say, you know what's about to come. I'll turn to her and go, so what would you like to do tonight? And she goes, you know what? I just don't care. I just am glad I'm with you. Oh, honey, you know, thank you. And she goes, you're the most awesome man that ever lived. So 20 minutes later, and she talks about my beard and, you know, and all this other stuff. No, that's not what happens. I go, okay, well, then I tell you what, let's go to PM's and get a burger. And she goes, ah, no, I don't want to do that. Okay, well, what would you like to do? Anything you want to do. Because you are awesome, and your beard is glorious. And Well, I tell you what, then, let's go over to Mafioso's and let's eat some pizza. Ah, No, you know, have you ever been in that scenario? And so making a decision then turns into an argument, and then we pull up stuff from 10 years ago, and I'm saying, and then your mother, and then she goes, well, your father. No date. (laughs) Decisions are critical. And you ought to be around when we're trying to decide what movie to go to. That's impossible. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it is hard, isn't it? And that's all funny, but it's not funny when we've got to make decisions about, like, how do you make decisions about your dating life? Whoa. You want to talk about some important decisions there, because the wrong decision there can be disastrous. Or how about when it comes to your kids? How do you make decisions about your kids? What about your business? Do we spend to grow? Do we grow to spend? I mean, how do we make those kind of decisions? How about your sexuality? How do you make decisions about your sexuality? Or how about money? Does your money make decisions for you, or do you make decisions for your money? Call your local broker. (laughs) How do you make those kind of decisions? And we could go on and on and on. Making decisions is important. I came across this story this week. I thought you guys would appreciate it. This is a story of a woman named Ruth Handler who owned a small toy company back in the early 50s. And she was approached by ABC television, and these executives came to her seeking sponsorship for a new weekly show, and they asked her if her company would buy a one-year sponsorship for a half a million dollars. The problem was the sum net worth of her company was a half a million dollars. And she knew that if I made this decision and this decision failed, our company's going bankrupt and it is no more. What should she do? Well, let me tell you what she did. Let me tell you a little bit about television at that time, though. Because here's the environment that Ruth had to make this decision in, is that the power of television and its advertising was really misunderstood or it wasn't understood well at all. Back in 1949, which was just a few years before she was forced to make this decision, only 2% of people in the United States had televisions in their home. Now that exploded, and by 1962, 90% of people had televisions in their home. And now we carry televisions with us everywhere we go. Well, here's the funny thing about the toy industry. They hardly advertised at all. Most were content to run a few promotions in big cities just before Christmas. Nevertheless, within an hour of getting the call, Handler sat down with her husband within one hour and made the decision that they would go back to ABC and say, yes, we'll do it." Isn't that crazy? She's betting it all. Roll of the dice. It was really a radical move. Because let me tell you why it was radical. Because instead of betting on a new toy, Handler had bet the company on a whole new concept. And here was the concept. Advertising toys to children rather than to their parents. See, the show was the Mickey Mouse Club. Handler's company was Mattel. And within three years, Mattel's sales had tripled to 14 million dollars. That sounds like one of those. uh, Who's that guy that does those stories like that? Paul Harvey. Now you know the rest of the story for you older people. Decisions matter. So we come to the very end of the book of Joshua. And Joshua, let me tell you a little bit about what's happened because we're jumping from chapter 10 to chapter 24 because we don't believe that chapters 11 through 23 should be in the Bible. Now... (laughs) Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be bizarre? What kind of church is that? The cult. Uh, no, I'd encourage you to go back and read. It's a great, they're great chapters. They're about how Joshua and his uh, forces went into the southern region of the promised land and they began to conquer and they began to face these kings and the alliances had come together and they defeated those alliances and then they moved their forces to the north and they began to conquer and they had conquered the entire promised land according to the promises of God. And then they began to disperse the promised land up into 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And now he's administrating over this great land called the promised land, and Joshua is about to die. He's 110 years old, and he he gathers all the elders and the leaders of the people together to give them his final word. Joshua 24, verse 14. Here's the final words of a man who was born a slave, who became the pastor of Moses for 40 years. He became Moses' servant and then was raised up from a slave to a servant to now a military general and now ruling over a country. You want to talk about this guy having some real life changes. Listen to what he says in verse 14, his final words. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's looking at all the leaders of all the tribes that are ruling this new country and he's saying, you have got to make a decision. You have got to make a choice. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And this word that he uses, choose, if we understand Hebrew correctly and the tense that it was written in, it's not just make the choice right now. This is a choice that continually needs to be made. Joshua is saying to them, Not only have you chosen, and look at the fruit of what God has done for you because you have chosen to serve the Lord, but choose today, and then tomorrow, choose again. And then the next day, choose again. Each day, each moment, each situation, you have to decide who you're going to choose. And he's saying, Choose to serve the Lord. Because what Joshua is really making clear to these leaders is do you know what your purpose is? Do you know what your mission is? Do you understand why you've been put in the position that you're put in? Leaders, people, Midtown, do you understand your purpose? Because every decision is based on what we understand our mission to be. Every decision that you make comes from somewhere. And every decision that you make comes from what you understand your mission to be. And we must be clear on the mission that we're on. When we don't know what our mission is, we're like the, uh, the folks that, that are say they're great archers, you know, and they shoot the arrow and then they go find the arrow and paint a target around it. You know, I can hit anything with my arrow, and that's usually what you hit when you don't know what you're aiming at. We must know what our target is. We must know what our mission is. Leonard Sweet in his book, Lead... He puts it this way Leaders are driven by a passionate inner music that leads others to find the passion of the music that beats inside of them. Let me put it this way If music meant mission, leaders are driven by a passionate inner music mission that helps others find that passion in their mission, that music that beats inside of them. For example, and he gives some examples. Like Southwest Airlines, they make it very clear that we're not in the air travel business. They're in the freedom business. Please come in. Someone's knocking. When the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. (laughs) Thank you. Southwest Airlines, it's not in the travel business, it's in the freedom business. Now think about that. If you're an executive with Southwest and you say to yourself, Hey, travel is not our business. Freedom is our business. Would that change the decisions that you make? The appropriate response would be yes. Okay. How about Fannie Mae? It's dangerous to use them as an example, but I'm going to anyway. They would say that they're not in the mortgage lending business. They're in their American dream business or the American nightmare now, all right? <laughs> But prior to the nightmare, they were in the American dream business, meaning they didn't see themselves as just giving mortgages, they, gave, they saw themselves as helping people fulfill their dreams. You see how knowing the difference between those two things would determine how they would run their business? So what is your mission? Do you understand that understanding what your mission is, is the key to answering all the questions that you're going to be faced with as a leader? It's crucial. See, what Joshua is saying is that we are in serving the Lord business. That is our mission. That's what we're about. Those of us in Christ, we've been called to serve the Lord. That's our mission. So, are you an artist here this morning? Your mission is not art. Your mission, if you're in Christ, is to serve the Lord, and you do that through art. Are you a mom here this morning? Your mission isn't to be the best mom that this world has ever seen. Your mission is to serve the Lord, and the role in which he has called you to serve him is by being a mother. If you're a business leader here this morning, do you think that's your mission, to grow the biggest, best company you could possibly do and avoid failure at all cost? Wow, how can you possibly do that? That would drive you insane. But I can serve the Lord, and I can serve the Lord as a businessman who leads a business. And that business may go up and it may go down and it may do things and take curves that are outside of everybody else's control. It doesn't matter because, whichever way it goes, I will continue to live out my mission that I'm serving the Lord. Are you married here this morning? What's your mission in your marriage? Is it to make your wife happy? That's impossible. (laughs) It's a failed mission. My mission certainly is not to love my wife. It's not to give her all the things that she needs. It's not to celebrate her. It's not to encourage her. That's not my mission. My mission is to serve the Lord, and in serving the Lord, I do all those things. See, if I try to be the best husband I can possibly be, and that's my mission, how am I ever going to face the reality that I am a failure at being a husband? How will I ever face the reality that I come up short when it means being a husband that's like Jesus? How am I ever going to come to the end of that road to where I look to Jesus and say, In my weakness, you are strong? See, my purpose in my marriage is not to help my wife be all that she can be, it's to serve the Lord and to follow Him and everything He's calling me to do for my wife. This is huge. Because the first question before any question as leaders is, who am I choosing to serve? Paul in Romans 1 and in Philippians 1, he put it this way. And grab this, because this is kind of crazy. This is, this is radical. This man of the Lord calls himself a bondservant. Now, we go, okay, what does that mean? I, you, know, you know, he's a servant, great. Well, in Roman times, if you were a slave, then you had a an iron collar around your neck that was riveted and welded to your neck, so that you could not take it off. So that everywhere you went, people knew that you were a slave. You couldn't hide it. You can't pretend you're not a slave. You can't hear you know wear one of those mock turtlenecks. What do they call those? That just comes right here. Yeah, Dickie. I need some of those. You can't you know you can't get away with it. When Paul said, "I'm a bond servant." What he was literally saying is, I have taken up a broken collar and I've put it around my neck and I've held it into place with my own hand. And I hold it into place. I choose this collar because foremost foremost, and most important, I am a servant of the Lord and I want the world to know it, whether I'm taken advantage of whether I'm cheated, whether I'm beaten on the road and robbed, whether I'm arrested, whatever may happen to me, even if it leads to my own death, I hold this collar onto my neck willingly because I know that this is my mission in life. Wow, that's that's radical. Well, Joshua knew that if there were some of you in this room or if there were leaders in that place that had gathered around him that day that were saying, I'm willing to go there. If you're willing to go there, if you're willing to say, yes, I will make that my mission, as a leader, when it comes to making decisions about every area of leadership, first I must ask, in this decision, who do I choose to follow? Who is it that I'm serving? Joshua knew there were going to be obstacles to that. He said, throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped. Joshua was saying that there is something that has to be taken off before that we can put that on. And you say it was idols. <laughs> and he's saying that to us today, too, is that we need to take off our idols. We were talking about this in the Gospel 101 class this week, and I just chuckled uh, Friday when the Lord just seemed to kind of merge these two things together. But in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, All these things that he's saying, hey, take those things off. Those aren't a part of who you are in Christ now. And then he tags this on the end, which all of them are are idolatry. All of the sins are idolatry. And what's radical about Paul saying that here and to us is that Paul is saying that every sin in your life and every sin in my life is birthed out of an idol that we worship. Really? So Paul is saying, I sin when I worship the wrong things. Is that possible? Let that sink in just for a minute. Think about your favorite sin, the one that you love, the pet. You have nicknames for it. Paul is saying that that sin exists in your life because you have chosen to worship an idol. Tim Keller says, sin isn't only doing bad things, it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin primarily is idolatry. Martin Luther put it this way, before you can break any of the commandments, you have to break the first one. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Or if you want something more modern, Bob Dylan said, you have to serve somebody. I'm not going to try to sing it. But think about that, you are worshiping something, you are serving something, and Joshua understood that, and as leaders, every decision we make, we are declaring, this is who I serve. Who do you serve? You know, what's crazy about that is, uh, it's hard sometimes to unmask the idols that we serve, that we tend to live in denial, or we cover them up, or we try to make them look prettier than they are, or we give excuses like, well, that's just the way I am, you know, And so it's important for us to unmask our idols. And how do we do that? Well, I can't in the next, you know, 30 minutes give full description of what we can do, all the things, but I can give you a little taste of it. Like, for example, what makes you angry or afraid? Because what makes you angry or afraid may be revealing to you what your idols are. For example, if you have a reputation idol, that how other people perceive you, in the office, or in your neighborhood, or in your band, or at school, or in your home, or whatever, your friends, if that's your idol, think of those things that may make you angry or afraid. Situations that destroy our carefully constructed reputation or status, say, as hard workers, or great parents, or wise counselors, fountain of knowledge peacemakers when something happens to destroy that like my two-year-old picks up a toy train and whacks little billy through next week Ah! you know that we become angry or afraid why because we don't want anybody to mess with our idol that which we trust is going to give me something that i need or how about a pleasure idol the kids get sick just when we were planning to go out for a nice night, and it took us three days to decide what place we we're going to go eat. And now we can't go. Or the electricity fails when I'm planning to relax in front of the television. It makes me angry or afraid. I'm not getting what I want, I'm not getting what I need. Or how about Money idle? You've been saving up for that new iPhone, and your car breaks down and you have to spend the money to get your car fixed. None of these things are bad things. Oftentimes they're really good things. And what's hard sometimes about decisions is it's not a choice between sometimes just a a great thing and a really bad thing. Very good things that stand right next to each other. And idols are like that too. And you know what's crazy about idols is it's not just the tool of angry or afraid that helps me unmask those things that I'm hoping in or I'm trusting in or I'm believing that those things are going to give me life, are going to make me feel better, or if I had more money somehow or another, I'd be a more full person, or maybe if people liked me, or maybe if I lost weight, then, or maybe if I gained weight, maybe if I grew my hair long, or cut it short, or if I got that tattoo, or I got that tattoo removed. Whatever it is that we're saying, hey, that's going to make my life richer, fuller, better. Maybe if I'm single and I'm going to get married, or maybe I'm married and if I got rid of my wife, somehow then I would be full. Sometimes the idols in our lives are so, uh, they're so just hidden. They're like Harry Potter with the thing over, you know, the invisible cloak. I saw it yesterday. Because we've made commitments to idols that we're unaware of. Like I grew up in a family system that, that dumped a dump truck load of idols onto my life. And it's like our accent sometimes, that we can't hear our own accent, but our family gave it to us. And our family systems sometimes dump a whole dump truck full of idols into our laps. Like, I grew up in a home, for example, that uh, one of our idols was control. And how did we control? Emotions were bad. The only emotion that was ever accepted in our home growing up was happy or laughter. You know? All the other emotions, nobody had time for. And you had to get those things under control. And so everybody had control, and that became an idol to where it became a difficult thing to put that idol down, to walk into the full blessings of being blessed by God, to understand that our emotions are a gift from the Lord, and they're great signposts that show us to our hearts and the things that matter to us, and the things that God's putting a fire and a passion and a music in us. But some of you grew up in the other extreme where every emotion must be expressed, No matter what you're feeling and no matter how inconvenient it is or what time it is or how it may hurt other people, you have to be honest and true to what you feel. And your idol becomes, I've got to be able to be me at all times regardless if it sacrifices everyone else around me. Yeah, we have to unmask some of those family traditions that we've inherited. Because what do we do when we pull those idols out? We pull them out to expose the liars that they are. We're pulling them out to expose that you can't give me what I desire in my life. And I'm tired of serving you. If you need more help with understanding how to navigate your own heart, because some of the things that I'm saying may be very strange to you. David Paulson, you can Google him. He has his 34 questions that kind of helps you guide through your own heart. Great questions such as, you know, what do you love? What do you want or desire? What do you crave or long for? Like, what do you seek? Where do you bank your hopes? What do you fear? What makes you tick? Where do you take refuge, safety, comfort, and escape? And it goes on and on. But these are great questions. If diving into your own heart and taking a hard look at the things that you really trust in and what you really believe in, if this is a new experience for you, and maybe living out of your heart with something your family cursed, and so that's a very difficult thing for you to do. These are some great questions to help you kind of walk into that world. And oh, by the way, when you do walk into that world, please, don't walk in it alone. Wow, that that can be a dangerous world. And uh, I just encourage you to find a good friend who will journey with you. But when we expose those idols, when we pull them out, and we see them as people that want to live on mission, that we want to choose the Lord. What do we do with them? And let me just quickly just tell you uh, three things. And as leaders, we need to be PAC leaders, P-A-C. I never use acronyms. We're going to use one this morning. Hopefully you can remember this. P, that we need to put it down. In other words, when we expose an idol, We need to put it down. In Colossians 3, it says, as it says, you know, rid yourself of all these things anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices. Colossians is saying, you see all this stuff that's part of your old self that really was rooted in an idol that you were worshiping? When you see those things, take it off. Take that off. Those things don't fit you anymore. When we're new in Christ, this isn't how we dress. He says, take it off. And one of the ways we take it off is we confess it. Oh, I see you. I see you. I smell you. And I know what you're saying. No, 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 no. I see that. I trust that. I had some friends the other, uh, well, this was several months ago, who we were working with a guy who was in prison, and he was being let out of prison. You remember this? And they asked me, hey, do you have any clothes that we can give him? Because he has no clothes. I said, no problem, I got some clothes, I never told you guys this. I go home, and I go in my closet, and I'm going, I need to give this guy a whole set of clothes, shirt, t-shirts, jeans, you know, shoes, and everything, and so I pull out of the shirt, and I look at the shirt, and I go, that'll fit him, that's good looking, like, whoa, I like that shirt, back on the rack, you know, okay, pants, oh, those pants are incredible, I'm probably going to wear those again, I can't give... And I had to step back after 20 minutes of picking out, putting back, picking out, putting back, picking out, putting. And I, in me, I wanted to give this guy everything that I would never wear. I was like, I will never wear that again. That, I consider that stuff rubbish. That's the stuff. It, it is just, he will not look good in that. But I don't want it. Hey, beggars can't be choosy. Now, is there anything wrong with me giving him clothes that I don't want anymore? No, there's nothing wrong. I mean, come on, we give clothes away all the time. Was there any mandate in Scripture that said I had to give him my best shirt? No. This was a good thing. I'm choosing between do I give him my favorite clothes, which may not be his favorite at all. His styles may be completely different. He may love wearing Converse that are 10 years old. Some people love that stuff. No, the Lord was revealing to me an idol. He was saying, hey, sit down for a minute and let's talk about this. Because your struggle right now is not about what you're giving him. What your struggle is about is what you value and what you think you get from what you value. Guess what I had to do? Thank you, Lord. I wasn't shamed by that experience. I was encouraged because me sitting down and saying, I see that, is a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Lord does with leaders. He sends his Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us and to give us counsel. Do you believe that? If you don't believe that, then you won't understand when he knocks on the door or the wall. We expose our idols so that we can put them down, we can take them off. Do you know what your idols are? Do you? Do you know the things that you worship? Hey, we need to be aware of those things, people. If we're going to be the kind of leaders that God wants to move through and in, we need to recognize those idols so that they don't don't entangle us as we seek to run the race. Because we know that those idols promise everything, they deliver on nothing. The second thing in our pack, we put it down and then we acquire the promises of God. Let me explain. In that same passage in Colossians, it goes on to say, put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of the Creator. We don't just take off, now we put on. And what are we putting on? We're putting on the promises of God. We're, we're putting down the false promises of idols, and we're putting on the true promises of God. And all the promises are yes in Jesus Christ. If you go back to that passage in twenty-four, chapter 24, verses 16 through 18, The people respond to Joshua and say, they began to tell him, these are all the things the Lord has done for us. You know, he he says, you know, he's brought us up and our parents up out of Egypt. They brought us out. The Lord brought us out of the land of slavery. He performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected our entire journey. And among all the nations through which he traveled, in verse 18, and the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. You see what they did? They remembered all the good things that the Lord had done for them. Because that's one of the ways that I put down or take off my idols and I put on the promises of God by remembering what he's already done. Because what is a promise? It's in the future. And the way I put on a promise with joy, even in the midst of suffering, is by remembering what the Lord has done in my past. It's a beautiful thing because all the promises are yes. At the cross, something profound happened at that cross. It wasn't just that the Lord forgave me of sins and cleaned me up. He did that. But then he went into the ground and then he rose to newness of life so that I too can live a new life. Here's the profound, powerful thing about this is that when Christ rose, he declares that those of us that are in Christ, we are co-heirs with Christ. We now stand in the position of sons and daughters. We've been brought into the family of God. But not just any position of son and daughter. We are standing in Jesus' position of son and daughter. So, that's why it says in 2 Peter 1, His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of Him who has called you by His own glory and goodness. If you heard nothing in there, what it said is he's given you everything you need. Really. Now listen to the rest of this. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Why? So that through these promises, we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, i.e. idols. The promises... Help us to participate in the divine nature. This is why we grow in our knowledge of the Lord, while we come and submit ourselves to teaching and and open up the Word of God, because we want to know more about the promises. Because let me tell you something, if I don't know I have something, that's the same as the person that has nothing. If I don't, I could be, I could have all the promises of God, But if I don't understand that I have any of those promises, I will live my life like the the person that has none of the promises of God. The other day, Joel, uh, y'all may know him, one of our pastors in our network here. He came into my office and he goes, man, have you seen my keys? (laughs) No. Do I just look like the Key Depot? Why would I have your keys? He goes, man, would you check your pockets and see if you have my keys? check your pockets. Why? I'd never drive your car. I'd never go in your office unless you're in there. I, look, no, nothing. And he's like, man, they just disappeared. You sure you don't have my keys? I said, I swear to you. So he walked home that day from the office. He had no key, and he walked to work the next day, even though I offered to give him a ride. No, I walked. You sure you don't have my keys? That night, all right, no, it was the next morning. I was drinking coffee and digging through my backpack, and guess what I found in my backpack? <laughs> Joel's keys. Oh, I cannot tell you how much I hated texting him and going, dude, found your keys. <laughs> he, he, he texts back, dude, where did you find them? <laughs> dude, count your blessings. You see, I had his keys, but I didn't know I had his keys. And guess what? Not knowing I had his keys was the same as not having his keys as far as it applied to Joel's life. And so, as believers, as Christ followers, if I don't understand that I have the promises of God, if I don't understand that, I will live my life like I have no promises of God. If God says to me, I will give you everything you need for life and godliness then when my life comes up short and the needs that I think I need, I can rely on that promise and say, God, you've made a promise and I trust that you're giving me everything I need. I rest in that. He is my provider, right? But if I don't know that I've got that promise and I come in need, (gasps) oh, those idols, they're so beautiful. Everything I could ever want. See, We know if we embrace the promises, these things are no longer at stake. My reputation, my identity, being loved, being profoundly loved, being filled with love, loneliness, worthiness, strength, on and on and on. Those things are not at stake anymore when it comes to me running a business. Those things aren't at stake anymore when it comes to finding a spouse. Those things aren't at stake anymore when it comes to making my marriage work. Those things aren't at stake anymore when it comes to me raising my kids. Those things aren't at stake anymore when it comes to me dealing with my own moral life and how I'm living my life before the Lord. Right? Right? Okay. So the last thing we do, PAC, we don't just put it down. We acquire the promises of God. And the third thing is we call. We cry. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit or acknowledge or call to him and he will make your path straight. You hear that promise? We acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. Let me give you this last story and then then we're going to close. Three months ago, our session began to meet to answer this question. Does the mission statement of Midtown best represent the mission that God has called us on? And uh, we began to wrestle with that. And your session, the leadership of this church, believes that God wants us to do everything by unanimous decision. That when there's something laid on the table, if we're not unanimous about it, we believe that God is calling us to a season of prayer and fasting until God unites us or stops us. I know, it's so inefficient, isn't it? (laughs) And let me tell you, in this case, it stunk big time, because we were divided. We could not decide as a unit how to move forward with this. Three months, long conversations, long meetings, long times of agonizing, tearing over words, and wrestling. And guess what happens when, uh, when you have to wait? You begin to doubt whether or not you trust. I'm not talking about the Lord, I'm talking about each other. So, God began to do something remarkable in this process of us wrestling for three months about what He was leading us to do. He was showing us something that is profound that we needed to embrace as leadership here at Midtown. You know what it was? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is efficiency. And God needed to work something into the life of our leadership that was not gonna be efficient. And it was profound because it brought us back to realize that our mission here is to serve the Lord. So I can promise you three things. If you acknowledge that the Lord is Lord over your leadership and he promises to make your past straight and you rest in that, three things are gonna happen. You are going to rest. I just said that twice, I know. You're going to rest. You're going to know peace. And you're going to be forced to wait. Because when the Lord leads, he leads on his own time. Boy, let me tell you. That's hard because when I have to wait, all my idols come out and play. Fear, what ifs, wait a minute, we can't. What if the Lord's going to do? How do we get his information? But here's what I'm going to ask you today. As leaders, because your life is not a throwaway. You're not an extra, you know, in Braveheart that gets killed in the first scene. All right? You're not. You matter to the Lord. And the Lord has uniquely and fearfully made you, and he's placed you right where you are right now for you to live out the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're in Christ, that is true about you today. Will you dare to lead? Will you dare to be a leader that says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Will you let that be your mission statement? I serve the Lord. I may be a businessman, but I serve the Lord, and I'll serve him through business, and on and on. Will you put down the idols that entangle us and confuse that question? Will you acquire the promises of God and the strength that come with them? Will you call on the Lord? It's a whole other conversation, and it may need to happen over coffee one day. But when we put that question first, you will be amazed in your life how all the questions after that seem to fall into place. When I answer that first question, it may even change all the other questions that my leadership challenge is going to bring to the table with me. Because now they become a joyful journey of seeing the Lord work rather than a fearful journey of me proving my worth to everybody around me. So, let's go into a little time of listening and responding, okay? Because you're not here to hear me speak, you're here to hear the Lord speak. He speaks through people like me, and thank God he does that, he speaks through people like you. So what have you heard the Lord say to you today? What is he saying to you? Let's just go into a few minutes of just being still before we sing a few songs and conclude our time together and ask the Lord, Lord, what are you speaking to me? Maybe he wants to reveal to you some idols that have ravaged your life. Maybe he's asking you to put those idols down this morning and acquire some of the promises of God. Maybe you don't know what the promises of God are and that may be your journey. Or maybe this morning he's just calling you to call on him and acknowledge him as Lord over your life Lord, over what he's put you in the middle of and make your path straight. Whom will you serve this day? Let's pray. Lord, lead us now, we pray. And we just want to acknowledge you as sovereign Lord over this world, over this universe. You're the one that has put every star in its place and you know each one of them's names. You're the one that that all of earth and creation knows your name. And they praise you day and night. Lord, you are the one that has made us you're the one that has brought us here to this place, and now you seek to meet us. Lord, this day, help us to choose you. Help us to lean in, Father, and confess our need and our desire to put down those things that have ravaged us, those idols that promised and have not only not delivered but have abused. And let us step into the love of our Father through your Son, Jesus Christ. And in that, we praise you, Father. We give you the glory in Christ's name.